Excellent. Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. Thank you for being here with us. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to Aaron's and thank you for being here with us. In case you are new, uh, over the last few weeks or so, we are continuing in our series in the book on, of Revelation. So don't freak out or panic or walk out. Um, there's some things to kind of set the stage that we've been learning over the past few weeks about the book of Revelation and the really helpful things to keep in mind when you're hearing passages on Revelation, when you're reading through Revelation. And I encourage each and every person in the church, if you're visiting too, to, to take some time, if you've not yet done it, and, and spend an hour or so, an hour and a half or an hour or two, however long it takes you to read it, and and sit down in one reading if you can, and read through the whole book of Revelation without trying to figure it out, without trying to stop and think about it, and and just at the end, reflect back on on your experience and what God communicated to you. And and I think you'll find some surprising things about it. But um, what we want to do is we read through the book of Revelation as we come on Sunday mornings, as we want to set aside any preconceived notions, because we've all had a bunch of various types of backgrounds, uh, and that's good. We, we love that we have people from different perspectives in our church. We love that there's diversity of, of perspectives, but what we want to do is set aside any preconceived notions and let God's Word speak for itself, right? Isn't that, isn't that right? We want to do that every Sunday. You want to let God's Word speak for itself in context. So you, you want to set aside anything else, and you want to say, okay, let's, let's remember some things here. Revelation is a letter, I think we forget that, right? Revelation, it's a letter, and it's a letter that was meant to be understood, as we saw a couple weeks ago. God intended it. Revelation actually means disclosure or to make clear something, to to pull back the veil. So it's a letter. It's meant to be clear. It's meant to be heard. It's meant to be kept. We're actually meant to do something and respond to this letter. It's a timely letter. We also saw in the last week or so that it was written to real churches in a real time, in a real place, facing real issues, And so this letter applies to the church generally. It was written to seven churches. That was the the primary setting for the letter. And that that, that seven churches, it symbolizes, well, all of the church. It wasn't comprehensive of every church that existed in Asia Minor, but it was written to all of the church. So these are just things to keep in mind. We want to make sure that we're reading this as a letter written to churches, and we hear it that way as well. And then we need to remember it's a prophetic letter. It's It's a letter that's written much like the book of Isaiah or other prophecy like Daniel or Ezekiel or other places in the Old Testament where you have prophetic imagery. And so we, we have that same genre here, and it's, but it's, it has otherworldly creatures. Don't be freaked out by that if you're reading the book of Revelation. Those otherworldly creatures are because it's describing an otherworldly reality that is, is really happening, that's really it pulls back the veil of what, what life is really like, what the heavens are really like, what, what God is really like, what the struggle between light and darkness is really like, so that we can understand our reality here and now and understand the reality to come. Okay, so those are just some things to keep in mind, perspectives on Revelation. So with that, we'll, we'll now dig into our passage today. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, if you have a Bible, open it up to Revelation 2, see it for yourself, have it there. We're going to be referring back to it throughout the message, but if you don't, we'll have it for you on the screen as well. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy, inspired word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, and which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you dictated this message to John. You dictated this message to your angels to give to your church for our good. God, let us hear these words for ourselves from you, Jesus. Let us hear this as if you are speaking to us because, Jesus, we know that you desire to speak to us through your word. God, would you make our, our ears open to hear you? Would you Clear our, our heads of any other thoughts, God, so we can focus in, on you and think of you, Lord. Would you awaken our minds so that we can be attentive and attuned to you? God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would respond to you, that this would not just be words that we hear and a good story, but Lord, I pray that we would respond to you from our hearts. We would be affected, and Lord, where needed, we might repent, respond to you. Lord, be filled with fresh faith for eating from the tree of life. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me to enable me to preach and fill everybody here to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Wednesday night of July 13th, 1977... I was just a young boy, I won't say how old, but I was just a young boy, and lightning struck several times, a transformer um, off of the Hudson River, and the lights went out in New York City. And when the lights went out, the blackout happened, and the city had been facing a severe financial crisis. As people who were living in the 70s know, the times then were not the greatest. People were suffering from protracted economic downturn. So when riots broke out, some people said, well, that was a problem. It was because there was such uh, an economic need. There were so many problems. The people in New York City, they were scared because there was a, a serial killer called the Son of Sam. And, and the, the weather was bad. It was really hot. And in the Northeast at the time, they had a sweltering heat wave. And, but whatever the cause, what happened when the lights went out was bad. When the lights went out in New York City, it was really bad. Looting happened massively across most of the city. We just read some statistics from the looting in, in hitting 31 neighborhoods. I don't know if you can imagine that. Think of that in Greenville terms. 
31 neighborhoods. The hardest hit was probably Crown Heights. 75 stores on a five-block stretch were looted. Uh, Bushwick arson was rampant. 25 fires were burning the next morning. Two blocks of Broadway were on fire. 35 blocks of Broadway were totally destroyed. 134 stores looted. 45 set ablaze. Thieves stole 50 new Pontiacs. I'm not sure how this made it, but from a Bronx car dealership. People were backing cars up the stores, tying ropes around the grates, pulling the grates off, and LaGuardia was closed down, Kennedy was closed down, subway tunnels were closed down, automobile tunnels were closed down because of the lack of ventilation. 4,000 people were evacuated from the subway system. Con Ed called it an act of God. The mayor called it gross negligence. 1,616 stores were damaged in the looting and rioting. 1,037 fires were responded to. There were 14 multiple alarm fires, 550 police officers injured, 4,500 looters arrested in one night, the largest mass arrest in the city's history. Congressional study looked back on it and said that in, in 2017 dollars, it was over $1.2 billion in damage in one night because the lights went out. Bad things happen when there's darkness. Bad things happen when the lights go out. Bad things happen when the lights go out because human nature is inherently bad. And so under cover of darkness, people will get away with whatever they can. Ephesus was a very large city. And in comparison, it would have been the New York City of its day. 250,000 people lived in the city of Ephesus, not including the surrounding regions. It was a massive port city. Back then, it was actually a port before it got silted over hundreds of years later. And it was a very influential temple, uh, temple worship site for the temple of Artemis. It was the largest temple. I think we have a picture of, the, of, of a model of the temple of Artemis. It was one of the, the seven wonders of the, nat- of the ancient world. Um, it was three times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. There were several different temples to the emperor, and so the cult of the emperor was huge. There was rampant idolatry. There was all kinds of deviancy practiced in the temples and around the temple grounds. The city's economy was, it was dependent on the trade associated with that temple. It was a very non-Christian environment. It was a very dark place. It was very culturally dark. It was, it was a place that needed light. In fact, when Paul, he went through Ephesus and he preached the gospel, and their response to him was so dramatic, he had to, get, he had to run out of town. He got kicked out to begin with, even though there was a church that had been established there, but Priscilla and Aquila, he had gotten kicked out. And, and the scene is dramatic, and there was a there was an, uh, a coliseum there, a 24,000-seat coliseum in the city, and they had gathered together. You think, you think crusades now were big. This was, this was a very large evangelistic effort. And there's this man called Demetrius, and he was opposing the apostle Paul. And you can turn into Acts 25 if you'd like at some point later. I'll just tell you the story from now. But Acts 25, it, it tells a story of the opposition to the gospel there because of the effects of the temple. Because they knew that their livelihood was based on this temple cult. And so Demetrius, he says the story of the people. And he says, men, he's standing in this coliseum with 24,000 people. And he says, men, you know that from this business, the temple, we have our wealth. 
And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but all, almost all of Asia, Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only this trade of ours, that's the key there, they were really concerned about trade, not true worship, may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She might be even deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. They heard that, they were enraged, they started crying out, and they started chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The chanting got so bad there, the, the, the mayor of the town had to come in. They, the whole city was filled with confusion, it said. They, half of them didn't know why they were there. They all rushed together in the theater. They started dragging all of Paul's co-workers into the Colosseum. You get the picture? This is a hostile place to Christianity. This is not a pro-Christian environment. It's a dark place. It says for two hours they cry out, great is Artemis to the Ephesians. Finally, they calmed down when the mayor said, hey, you know, we're going to get in trouble with Rome. But it was also a city where the gospel had thrived. The gospel had thrived there. The apostle Paul, and he, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians, the same church here that John is dictating a letter, from, I mean, taking down dictation from Jesus and writing this message to the church in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.15, he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you know, all my prayers. So at some point, the city of Ephesus was a bright light, and he explains what is a bright light because of, because of the faith in the Lord Jesus and his love towards all the saints. And after the Apostle Paul wrote that, later on, John, the Apostle, he, from tradition, we know that he, he moved to Ephesus. He lived there for a while. He probably wrote the letters of 1, 2, 3, John, probably from Ephesus. And he's now exiled on the island of Patmos, writing back to the churches through Jesus' dictation. The, the church there was facing extreme pressure. Now, now think of this as applying to us as well. They faced extreme pressure. There were pagans who worshiped false gods. And think about our culture around us. There are people who worship false gods. Now, they don't physically, most people don't physically worship physical gods anymore. But those people then were just worshiping trade anyway. The people back then were really mainly worshiping what they could get from those gods. What they wanted was wealth and happiness. What they wanted was sensuality and all those other things. And so, there's a lot of idol worship as part of everyday life, and sensuality was almost inescapable in, in Ephesians, in Ephesus. Some claimed to be Christians, and they, they said that it's okay to look like the culture around you and engage in sensuality and idolatry as long as you don't really believe it when you do it. You ever hear that today? You ever hear that, you know, it's okay to kind of engage in the things of the world, to practice idolatrous practices, as long as you don't really believe it, and it, it's fine to just go along. Or, you know, it's okay if Christians engage in some level of sensuality, as long as they don't go all the way. The church in Ephesus was tempted, they were hard-pressed, there had been divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And it was hard to like people in the church. Anybody ever experienced that? Where it's hard to like other people in church? You can raise your hand. It's okay. It's okay. You can raise your hand because everybody else here probably has had that and they're not thinking it's you necessarily, right? It's difficult sometimes to love fellow Christians, right? In a, in a big city. It's difficult to love fellow Christians. Sometimes there's sincere differences. And it's hard. It's challenging. And how about this? When people hate you because of your Christianity, is it hard to love them? 
Anybody here, raise your hand. Has anybody here have a hard time loving people that hate you because of your Christianity? Has it, has it ever been hard? And, and sometimes the reaction can be that you kind of grow cold towards them or kind of bitter or you write them off or talk about them as those people, right? You know, those people who believe that way. And so Ephesus was facing a lot of temptation and challenges. They were hard-pressed. They faced challenges in the dark world. They were in danger of losing We'll see in a minute, they're light. So Jesus sends them a personal message. Now, when you're reading these seven messages, and over the next six more weeks, we're going to be looking at these seven messages. So today's the first of seven, these messages to the church. This, think about that. If you were a church and, and you received a message that was personally dictated to you from Jesus, how would you receive it? You would pay attention, right? You would listen up. You'd also, one, you'd be excited to hear what did Jesus have to say to you personally? And then when he's commending you, you'd be excited about that commendation and you'd be, in a good way, proud of that. If there is a good kind of proud, you'd be, you know, hey, this is a good thing here. We're, we're doing some good stuff. But then when Jesus says, but I have this against you, you'd probably get a little flushed, right? Your probably ears would start to perk up and you're like, What? Pardon me, Jesus, you have something against us? So whenever you hear these letters, these these little messages to the church, we're meant to hear them like the original audience did. We're meant to listen up and hear them as a message to the church, a message to the church personally. And he, he dictates this personal message. So put yourself in the shoes of the early church, how they heard it. That's how you're meant to hear all of Scripture, by the way, is put yourself in the shoes of those people first before you apply it to our day. And so he dictates his message to John. And, and, and look back in your Bibles. He says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. So Jesus directly, directly dictating to an angel. So that's, that's how all the revelation comes. comes from Jesus through an angel to John. The same way we see here, same pattern we see here. And he says, write the words of him. And then he gives us a little picture here, right? He gives us some imagery that, that may not be as familiar to us. But if you remember last week, it, we'll, we'll see what that meant. So he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars... In his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you remember, last week we said that Jesus himself, in Revelation 1.20, he explained what that meant. The, the stars are the angels of each church. Now, whenever Revelation explains a, a picture or an image, it, it means what that explanation is directly. Um, there's many places in Revelation where it does not explain what the imagery means exactly. He, he explained it. Jesus himself explained, hey, by the way, so you're not confused, those stars are representative of the angels of the church. So in some way, there's angels assigned to each church. Don't know exactly how that works. We're not meant to be slowed down by that. And then he says the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that he's addressing in this, these messages. Right? So you, you tracking so far? Everybody tracking, by the way, so far? Okay. So... Now, let me, let me just give you a word for a second about Revelation. Whenever you hit things that, that we can't exactly understand, treat them like you would a speed bump in a neighborhood that you're cutting through. You ever, you ever, anybody here ever cut through a neighborhood? <laughs> and, and you know that everybody else in the world uses it as a cut through, so eventually then they build speed bumps, and you're a little irritated by that. And so what do you do when you're passing through a neighborhood and it has speed bumps? You slow down, but you don't stop, Right? You're not meant to stop all the way. It's meant to make you slow down so you can look around and, and look and see the neighborhood and be, be on guard for kids or people walking their dogs or whatever. So um, when you hit things that are not, we don't exactly understand. I don't understand why there are angels assigned to churches and how angels, what angels have to do with churches exactly. 
but we don't have to. That's not the main point. So don't get sidetracked by little details in Revelation as you're going on. Say, okay, this is a little speed bump. Slow down. See what Jesus said. Now let's move on and see what the main point is. Word, as I said last week, could be translated messenger. It, it could be talking about a specific human. But you know, 70 other times in Revelation, it's always used of actual angels. And Jesus himself said it was angels. So we'll probably just rest with that. Now, what's not clear is exactly what that relationship looks like. But maybe a reason for addressing the church by the angels is to remind the church of where their true home is, right? And that God's given them heavenly help and protection from their struggles in the world. There's actually heavenly help and protection assigned to each church for each church's good. I like the way that G.K. Beale says it. He says, um, one of the purposes of the church meeting on earth in its weekly gatherings is to be reminded of its heavenly existence. That's one of the reasons we gather, be reminded of our heavenly existence. We don't just exist here we have a heavenly existence and identity. It says, by modeling its worship and liturgy on the angels and heavenly churches' worship of the exalted Lamb. And that's why we sing, Behold the Lamb. That's what, they, that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. He says, This is why scenes of heavenly liturgy are woven throughout the apocalypse. That's just another word for revelation. Especially in concluding sections with service interpretations of preceding visionary narratives. What he's saying is often we have these, this imagery that's tied to heaven and it's meant to let us see there is more to our existence as a church than just our heavenly home. It's probably why he mentions angels. And it's representative of the entire church meant to be received by the church. But, but here's the thing he wants the church to know. Why does he say he walks among the lampstands and he holds these stars? You got to think about that, right? Think about the imagery of Jesus holding something in his hand. If Jesus is holding you in his hand, that's good news, right? He's grasping you. He's holding you firm. He's holding the representatives. He's holding these churches. He's holding the angels in his hands. Not only that, he says he walks among the lampstands. He's not passive amongst his church is what he's saying to us. He's not inactive in the midst of his church. He's not detached. He's not far away. He's not uninvolved, right? That's what, that's what Revelation's telling us here. He's, Jesus is giving us some picture here of the fact he is walking in and among and active in his church. Isn't that good news? You know what? Whenever we gather together, Jesus is walking here. Isn't that cool to know? When you're praying for somebody, Jesus is walking amongst the church. When you are Getting together for a Bible study, Jesus is there. When, when we gather to sing songs, Jesus is present. When, we, when the word is preached, Jesus is present and he is walking amongst us. Now, that should keep us awake, right? If my preaching doesn't, boy, thinking about Jesus walking around, I'm like, all right, well, I should be aware of how I'm listening too. And I need to be aware of how I'm preaching. Everything we do, Jesus is walking in and amongst the church. That's good news, and it's sobering news both. It's comforting news, and it's news that keeps you on your toes too, right? And that's meant to be the effect of Jesus' image. It's, it's meant to be comforting. He is active. He's not distant. He's at work. And also meant to say, hey, hey, hang on. Don't act like he's not around, like he doesn't see, like he doesn't know. And that's what he tells us later. We'll see in a few verses. He says, I know, I know. Now, I want to draw your attention to something else. Whenever you see in these seven messages, by the way, and this is going to be kind of a little bit of an intro to the other six messages too uh, on the 
messages to the churches. Whenever you see each of these messages, there is a different imagery that's used, that Jesus uses of himself at the beginning of each of these messages. All seven of these messages use a different aspect of the imagery of Jesus. And then somewhere else in the message, you see that that imagery is referenced again. And so what you're going to see is that in each message, that imagery of Jesus is actually meant to affect the interpretation of the message and how we receive it. Now, I know you might not be tracking, so let me give you some illustrations here. Um, I think we have Revelation 2.8. This is the next message. We're not going to go in detail here, but Revelation 2.8, he says to the church in Smyrna, the second message, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, here's the other illustration that he used at the beginning, this image he used at the beginning, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, and then later on in that message he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Right? So the image he shows at the beginning is is meant to affect how we receive that and how it's interpreted, the message of that. So in verse 12, he, next, he writes to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So you're meant to see him as a two-edged sword in his mouth. And then later on, after he's corrected them, he says, therefore repent, if not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The imagery is always used to interpret and understand the message in each of these letters. So we'll see that later too, and we're going to see that here. Now look at the imagery he uses in verse 1. Look again at the imagery he uses. So he uses imagery of what? A lamp, right? Stars, light, light things, things that bear light. Stars, they bear light in the heavens. And then lamps, golden lampstands that bear light where? We're, we're on the earth because it's the church. Now, actually, I've got a lamp. Would you mind grabbing that stuff and bringing it up here? That'd be great. Now look at verse 5. Here's how we're going to make sense of this whole message, all right? Look at verse 5. Look down your Bibles, it'll open the screens. He says, in, in verse 5, he references this imagery again. He says, if not, if you don't respond, I've got some concerns for you. You're not loving each other, but you're not, you're not demonstrating your first love. You abandon your first love. He says, if, if you don't repent, if not, I'll come to you and remove what? Do what? Remove your lampstand. So Jesus' message here has something to do with illumination and some function that the way that the church shines or illuminates, right? You, you, you tracking so far here? So that's the key. The message has to do with illuminating or a light. And so the main corrective that he gives in the middle of that is that they've lost their first love. I have a, a, a very ugly lamp here on purpose. It's a lampstand. It's not a menorah, but it's got a lot of different... Maybe I can shape it like that here. It's, it's got five, not seven, sorry. Um... Uh, no, don't, don't, not yet, not yet. Uh, so it's, it's a lamp, right? Now, what's the function of a lamp? To shine, I hope everybody said to shine light. Uh, it's not, I mean, I guess it could be decorative, but you'd have to come from 1986 for this to be, or 1990, I guess, to be a decoration, right? That's up, up in our family room for the kids, because I guess it's a fun light. Um, but lamps are for what? To, to do what? To shine light. But if I went to turn this lamp on, you can hear it clicking, and it doesn't shine light, something's wrong, right? It's not, it's not fulfilling its function. So Jesus here, he's saying, I'm walking among the lampstands. I'm walking among the churches. I have this against you. You're not showing each other love. And by the way, if you don't do that, if you don't show light by showing love, I'm going to take away your lampstand because a lampstand that doesn't shine light, it's not really a lamp, does it make sense? You tracking that so far? So really the main, the main idea of this whole passage, if you want to write this down, the main idea of this whole passage, 
You can write it down. Now, I put it in 21st or 22nd, I guess. Are we, what century is this, by the way? Is it? All right, 21st. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> just see if you're awake. Christians are meant to be lamps of God's love. Christians are meant to be lamps of God's love. Churches, which are made up of Christians, right? So churches or Christians are made to be lamps of Christ's love, but lamps that don't shine are not really lamps, and so he gets rid of them. Okay, did you get that? See, that's kind of summarizing the message Jesus is talking about. Christians are meant to be lamps of Christ's love, but lamps that don't shine, they really aren't lamps. Now stick with me, I think it'll be clear at the end. You see the very beginning, we see something here, we see one main idea at the very beginning here after that. We see that Christians are lamps. He walks among the lampstands and he expects them to shine. If they don't shine, he takes the lampstands away. So that's why it makes sense of the passage. And I hope I don't break those bulbs down there. But the very first idea that we're shown here is that Jesus knows his lamps. Okay? So Jesus knows his lamps. He knows his lampstands. Now they had lampstands because they were stands that held little either oil lamps or candles. We don't have those. We, we just call them lamps now. But Jesus knows his lamps. He knows his churches. He knows the people in the churches. He says he walks among them. That was good news. He knows each and every church. He knows the church. He, he knows what, what the church is doing. He knows the attitude of each church. It's why each message is tailored to each church separately. Um, every church has its own kind of strengths and weaknesses, right? We, we have our strengths and weaknesses in our church. Um, yes, we have weaknesses. I'm aware we have weaknesses. We're trying to work on those. But you know what? We also have some strengths here too. And that's good news. And that's true for every church back then. They all had different strengths, different weaknesses, different things to be addressed. Some were nearing apostasy. So otherwise, like the church in Ephesus, they were doing good, but they needed to correct something serious. They needed to correct something serious. They were in danger of something. They had abandoned their first love, but Jesus knew that. He knew the church specifically, and he supports, he cares for, he walks among his churches. And by the way, think about that language of Jesus walking amongst them. If I told you that Julie, my wife, has walked with me since 1990, I think you would know what that means. It doesn't mean that we've been on a long walk physically, although at times we do go on long walks, but she's been there through thick and thin. In all of life, Julie has walked with me. When Jesus uses that language, we're meant to get that. He's walking with his church. He's walking amongst his church. That's good news, right? It's meant to be encouraging. He knows the church. But not only that, he says, I know your works. So he, he walks amongst his church. He holds the stars of the church. It's not, it's not pastors and people. That's, that's angels, by the way. So he holds the light bearers in heaven, and he walks amongst the light bearers on earth. And then he rejoices over his lamps. He, he really loves the different aspects of his lamps. He goes, I know your works. So he looks at his lamp. He says, hey, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance different aspects of the church that are commendable. And as a church, you're meant to hear those things and say, yes, where those are true. Whoa, thank you that Jesus knows me and he commends the church. He doesn't just look for bad things. He's aware of everything in the church. When he says, I know, nobody can accuse Jesus of misjudging or being unfair or unjust. He's walking amongst, he knows. Remember earlier, he said he's the, he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He knows everything. So when Jesus says, I know, he knows. 
Don't think, church, your works are unseen by Jesus. He knows. Don't think the good things that you do are not seen by Jesus. He knows, and he commends those things. He commends you for your works. And, and that word for works is often meant to, to mean how we live out our life generally. Not, not, just, not just good things, but how do we live out, how do we, what do we do in life? And so he's saying, church, I know you're living your life in a manner that's pleasing to me. You're living circumspectly. You're not engaging in idolatry. You're not giving into those things. You're, you're not engaging in those the, the rampant sensuality in the culture around you. You're not engaging in those works of darkness. I know your works. And he says, I, I, I know your toil. You know, toil there is hard work. So I know how you live, and I know when you're, you're really working hard. And by the way, the Christian life, if you're living in and amongst a city like Ephesus, and, and we still are, even though Greenville is the buckle of the Bible belt, um, not everybody here is so godly, right? Not everybody here likes Christians, some people hate Christians because of where we live, because they've seen legalism and license and all kinds of ill practices. And so sometimes it's hard work. And so Jesus tells the church there, I know your hard work. I know your toil. And then he says, I know your patient endurance. I know that you are patiently enduring. And by the way, anybody, if you don't, you are patiently enduring in the Christian life. It's a, it's a life of patient endurance. If you don't, I don't know how to relate to you. Because sometimes the Christian life, it requires a lot of patient endurance. A lot of putting up with, and that's good. And so he commends them for that. He commends them for their upstanding works. Their lifestyle is consistent with the character of one who calls himself a Christian. He says, you, you don't bear with those who are evil either. You don't put up with evil people. You've tested people who call themselves apostles and they really aren't. That's the definition of those evil people. People who claim to be the representatives of Jesus, but they really aren't. And, and you test them. You test them by their lifestyle. You test them by, do their words match up with Scripture? That's what we're supposed to do today as well, right? We're meant to test people with, with, that proclaim that they speak on behalf of Jesus. Does their life, by and large, not perfectly, but does it match up with their profession? Or at least are they trying to match it up with their profession? Another thing you're meant to see is that, okay, um, do their words match up with Scripture? And there are a lot of people proclaiming to be apostles today, by the way, still, who are false, who are not. And we're to test them like that, and that's good. And so he commends them for it. He says, you, you've tested those who call themselves apostles. They're not found to be false. He says, I know you're enduring patiently. He tells them again, I know you're enduring. So he's telling all these aspects of their lamp that he's talking to them about. He says, I, I know I know your works, I know your toil, I know if you endure patiently, you're, you're testing these false prophets, and you're enduring patiently. All these wonderful things about their lampstand. And he says, you've not grown weary. That's, that's hard sometimes, and so this is a really strong church. This is a church that's grounded in strong doctrine, right? They're, they're grounded in sound doctrine, they're doing good stuff. They're doing hard work as a church. They're serving. They're active. They're actively engaged. They're trying to honor God in their daily lives. And um, they're, they're doing hard work. They're bearing up. And they haven't grown weary. That's hard, right? It's, if you're a Christian, you have to acknowledge, it's not easy not to be weary sometimes. So that's good. These are all great things about a church. At the same time, this wonderful lampstand, Jesus says... There's something wrong. 
He says, but I have this against you. You can be a great Christian in so many wonderful areas, but if you're missing this one area Jesus is saying, then he's a, he has this against you. Now, whenever Jesus says, I have this against you, your ears should perk up. So this church, their ears would have perked up. Why, why was he saying this? Because, you know, if, if you... Now, this lamp might not be a good illustration, but if you come home to your house and it's dark at night and you flick on the lights, something's wrong when the lights don't go on, right? And you, if you are a conscientious homeowner, you'll probably say, okay, well, let me figure out what that is. And we try to fix that problem. Why? Because you care. You care that there's not light because the, the lights aren't functioning like they're supposed to. And so Jesus says... But I have this against you. Something's wrong with your lampstand. You're not shining like you're supposed to. I have this against you. Look in verse 4. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, this could mean a bunch of different things. and I think it primarily means two areas of application. Because when Jesus earlier commends them, for how they've borne up for his name's sake. And they have their works for his name's sake that they have borne up, they've endured, are for his name's sake. He's not saying they're not loving him. Okay? So they're not unbelievers. They're not, not that they're not loving him. But he's saying that they're not demonstrating their love to others. So they're bearing up for, for the sake of Jesus. They're doing this as worship to God. They're loving God. How do you love God? You do things for his sake, in, in honor of him, to him, for him. Right in response to his love for us. But he still says, I, I, I have this against you, you've abandoned the love you had at first. How, how is our love primarily seen as, as Christians? Think about that for a minute. What does he mean, abandon the love you had at first? So in, in Ephesians, and in, in, in the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 1, Paul encouraged them for what? For the love they had for one another. That they demonstrated their faith in God by the love they had for one another. And so now John's writing, hey, Jesus says you're, you're banning your love that you had at first. And, and there's another way that our love is seen, right? In our love for the world. There's two primary ways. If it's not love for God, then there's, there's only really, the great, the great commandment is this, right? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and our neighbor kind of has two pieces. Our neighbor is the people in the church and the people outside of the church. So we love the church, and we love the church in a different way. Love one another as I have loved you. And we love the church, and we love the world as well. And yet, if you are surrounded by an idolatrous, sensual culture, it can be pretty hard to love that culture if you are abstaining from engaging in those things, Right? You ever challenged by how do I love my neighbors who hate Christians? The previous house we lived in, it, I, my, my neighbor genuinely hated us because we were Christians. He was fine until he found out we were Christians and then he just started hating us and yelling at my kids and it was hard to love him. Wouldn't be telling you this if, it was, if we were still living there probably. It's hard. It's hard sometimes to love unbelievers. It's hard as well to love people in the church you might disagree with. And so sometimes you can become cynical and you can withdraw. And when you look at all the problems in the world and you read the news, you can become disenchanted with people who are anti-Christian and you can become a little bit angry with them and fail to have love towards them. At least that's my temptation. I, I assume we're all tempted that way. 
Now, think about what a lampstand does. A lampstand is meant to hold a light. These lampstands, they, I don't, they don't have any lights in them. They're all barren. Um, remember the imagery. Now, to read Revelation, you need to understand the rest, or at least have an understanding of the Bible to some degree, or look back in your, in your concordance and say, okay, where else does he mention lights? So look over in Isaiah. In Isaiah, we have a scripture for you, Isaiah 42, 6. He talks about lights. And the prophets are really key to interpreting Revelation, by the way, because they reference the books, the Old Testament books, more than any other book in the Bible, Revelation. 250 times allusions to. And so what was the function of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Here's what God says the function of the Israelites, the function of the, the people of God prior to the church, were their function... Listen here, he says, was to be light. He says, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Okay, so you're reading Revelation. Oh, wait a minute, he's talking about a lampstand, a light. Whoa, I should, I should, I should have a parallel here. A light for the nations. What, what's this to do? What's the light for the nations to do, the function? What's the, what's the primary way that God talks about a light functioning in the Old Testament for his people? Look in verse 7. He says, a light for the nations, what? To open the eyes that are blind? To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. A light for the nations, people who are not in the church, not God's people, to proclaim the news, the light of God's kingdom is what he's talking about here. Israel didn't do that. They didn't fulfill that purpose. So what did God do? God removed the lampstand. He actually uses those kinds of words he removed Israel as the lampstand, and he, he raised up the church. Jesus later referred to himself in John 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have light. In Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world now. Now because you have me in you, you are the light of the world. You're the fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy of being a light to the nations by proclaiming light into darkness. Opening eyes are blind, bringing out prisoners from the dungeon, prison those who sit in darkness, showing them the light of God. Now Matthew 5 says, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Oh, hang on. He's using some of the same language there in Revelation, isn't he? Seeing your light, your good works. What do we do if we've lost our love? He says, go back and do the good works you did at first. Give glory to your fathers in heaven. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. He didn't come to abolish Isaiah. He came to fulfill Isaiah in us. You, you tracking? You see how Revelation actually makes sense of the Bible? I, I love in Isaiah 9, that prophecy foretelling Jesus. It says in Isaiah 9, too, the people who walked in darkness, what? Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And then you look at the fulfillment in Matthew, and you see that light tied to gospel witness. In Matthew 4, he says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people, now he's quoting Isaiah, dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death. And by the way, that's still us. We're still dwelling in the region in shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. Now look what Jesus did next. What, 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 what is tied with that light bearing immediately in Matthew? Look in, look in verse 17. He says, from that time, Jesus began to what? To preach. Saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this, this loss of love, it was, it was 
probably seen and they, they need to love each other in the, within the church. But I think one of the primary, perhaps the primary emphasis of where this love was not seen is they lost love for people who were walking in darkness. They weren't shining gospel light. Jesus said of the church, you're the light of the world. And how we show our light is it's not just the work of living for Jesus. And by the way, there's good things. But you know what? Uh, if, if you are a lampstand and you're not shining the light of God's love by declaring who he is, by showing that by, in, in your love for each other as well, all men will know your disciples by your love for one another, and then that's meant to be a platform for you to then to share light and, and demonstrate your love for Jesus church to be a light in the world if it doesn't shine its light they're no longer living out the primary function later on in, in revelation 11 he talks about these two lampstands that are referred to as witnesses that prophesy to the world so you start to see oh wait a minute this revelation makes sense here now how is it tied to love well when you are head over heels in love with somebody what do you do Maybe you can shout it out a couple days ago, we celebrated Valentine's. At least um, the guys in here who weren't making excuses for themselves celebrated Valentine's. And if you made excuse for yourself, I'm sorry. I apologize. If you're like, I'm anti-establishment, I don't, I don't celebrate Valentine's. Yeah, okay, sure, maybe. If you really give your wife flowers the rest of the year too, okay, I, I'll buy that. But, and, and I just probably slammed half the guys in the room. So, so next week or this week, you better give your wife some flowers, all right? Um, or show her love in some other way, whatever's meaningful for her, by the way. So a lot of women don't like flowers. I don't mean to say that. So I'm going to get in trouble. Um, if, if you're head over heels in love with somebody, what, what's the first thing you do? Say it out loud. You spend time with them. You tell people about it too, don't you? Right? When, when, I, when I fell in love with Julie, I, I, I wanted her to meet my family and friends really soon thereafter. I wanted to tell everybody about her. I, 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 I talked to people about her. I, I told everything about the person I loved. I told everybody about her. And so everybody knows I'm married. When I go places today still, when I talk to other people, I tell them about my wife. I want them to know that I'm in love with somebody. One, because I don't want them to get the wrong idea, but two, because I, do, I want them to know I love her. If, you're, if you are in love with someone, you tell people about it. They're not sharing the good news of the gospel. It wasn't just evidence of them not loving the world. It was evidence they've let their love for Jesus grow cold. When I discovered good coffee in the 80s and 90s, when you know, Starbucks, I think, opened in 1986, and, and I think they had 25 stores, and then by the 90s, they had like 3,000. There's like 8,000 today or 28,000. I can't remember. They have thousands, but... I told everybody about good coffee. Now everybody knows and now everybody has opinions against Starbucks and they like other coffee. That's fine. People, people announce what they love, right? If you, it's not hard to know if somebody is a CrossFit person, right? It's not hard to know if somebody like is, a paleo, has, is on a paleo diet or if somebody's vegan. Or it's not hard. I'm not picking on these things. It's just not, it's not hard to know um, if you're really into a sport it's not hard to know if you really like a show. Why? Because you tell people what you love. That's not wrong. Actually, we're meant to do that. We're meant to tell people what we love. That's how God built us. He made us that way. Why? So that we ultimately will love him and then we'll tell people about our love for him. 
He made us want to tell people and share the love we have. And that's so it's seen in all these little mundane ways when we share the love we have for a car brand or whatever it is or a movie or those things. Those aren't bad things necessarily, but those good things can sometimes replace the best thing, which is love for Jesus because of his love for us. Has love for other things replaced your love for Jesus? Has love for other things superseded your love for Jesus? How do you diagnose that? How do you love one another? Is one. How do you love people in the church? And are you begrudging and do you grumble and complain about it? Or do you say, you know what, this is a great privilege because, and I don't mean just once in a while, but I mean, what's the, what's, what's the norm? Or do you say, you know what, this is a privilege because Jesus has brought me into his family. He's made me a member of his household. He's given me fellowship with him, so I want to be in a relationship with him. Or when you meet people in the world, do you grumble, complain, or distance yourself, or get cold towards them because, oh my gosh, they're so hard. Or you say, you know what, they're in a dark place. And, and humans, when they're in darkness, they do bad things. And I need to shine the light. Light's meant to dispel darkness. It's meant to be kind. You know, um, we started a Christian ministry on the, on the college campus of George Mason back, I think, 93. And we did that because we had a passion for seeing people come to a local church. When we realized that almost no Christians on campus had a church they were going to, they kind of was like, oh, we can just come to, church, to, to our little Christian campus ministry, but not actually have fellowship. And we were grieved because we thought, yeah, that's, that's not right. We love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you love his people. So we started a campus ministry. We moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, not because I, I love Canadians alone, although I do love Canadians, and I, I especially like four of them. They're my kids, my first four at least. I love them, but they weren't Canadians then. They weren't born. Um, we moved there because we love the people there. That we, There was 2% of the population that claimed to be a Christian, so we moved there because we, we knew that they were dark and they needed to see the light of Jesus, and we wanted to show Jesus' love. When we moved here... We, we were asked to move here. We saw a need in the church at the time. And, you know, living here and in and amongst people in Greenville, it can be challenging. It's another challenging for another reason. Because people here, everybody here claims to be, or most people here claim to be a Christian or claim to have heard about Christianity. And so you can become callous and say, I don't need to share the gospel anymore. Well, that's not loving. And so after 11 years of living here, I, I, I went back when I was studying in this passage, and I thought, okay, let me do some self-diagnosis here. How am I loving the people around me? I'm not doing a great job in loving unbelievers like I was when we first moved here. Now, I'm not doing bad things. We're doing good works. The church here, I am so encouraged. Our church is doing some great things. You guys are doing hard work. You're serving. You're, you're loving each other. You're loving God. You're, you're doing wonderful serving works. You're a strong, healthy, good church. You're healthy in lots of ways. So please hear all those commendations from Jesus as well. But I also want us to ask ourselves the question, and I'm not assuming it applies because I know a lot of you here, that you do share the good news with other people. But I think we're meant to diagnose ourselves and say, wait a minute, Jesus is speaking to the church. He's, he says later, let, if you have an ear to hear, and by the way, does everybody here have an ear? Raise your hand if you have an ear on your head. At least one. Okay. Now, if you have hearing aids, that's fine. You might not be able to wear it. Turn them up. That's okay. But if you have an ear, you qualify. He says, let everyone who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to all the churches, including us. 
So hear it and think, where do I need to keep this? So the question is, okay, you know, have I become a little settled in my attitude towards sharing the love of Christ with others who don't know him? Have I become settled? Have I become callous? Have I become indifferent? Have I become complacent? Have I, have I just kind of lost some luster? You know, am I as passionate for sharing the good news about Jesus with my mouth? And by the way, they had a study that came out from the Barna Group this past week, and everybody was scandalized. It's not really surprising, though. And um, they said that in the high... 76 or something like that, I can't have the exact numbers written down, but 76% of, of millennials, people in their 20s and 30s, they said that it was wrong to share the gospel with people who believe differently. But yet they believed it was good to share the gospel. How do you, how do you reconcile those two things? And, and, I, and I think it's supposed to be shocking for us to read those kind of statistics and say, well, that's not good, something's wrong. They aren't really loving people. You aren't really loving people truly if you're like, hey, they're a Muslim. I'm not going to share the good news with them because, you know, they believe that. I don't want to infringe upon their rights. No, you're damning them to hell. Please love them better than that. Because people believe or practice differently than you or sensual in their practice doesn't mean you shouldn't love them still. So... He shows us what's going on here, not out of condemnation, but why. If I find a lamp that's not working and, and I own this lamp, I should try to fix it because I care about it. I should say, you know what, this lamp isn't shining. I, I, need, to, I need to put some lights back in that lamp here. I need to put some, some bulbs back in here and I need to fix it here. So, you know, Jesus is doing that kind of diagnostic work and he's saying, you know, this lamp of the church, it's not, it's not working so well. And so he... He says, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Church, if you find yourself, church in Ephesus, if you were in the place where I found that you, you, you don't have, you're not shining the light of love. He, he, he diagnoses because he wants his lamps to last. That's, that's, that's the third idea we're going to finish with. It's Christ wants his lamps to last. He wants his lamps to shine. He wants his lamps to function like they're supposed to. He, he wants his lamps to do what they're supposed to do, not... Not because he's mean, but because he loves us and he wants us to actually carry out the purpose that we've been called for, right? If you're a lamp and you're not shining, you'd be a pretty unhappy lamp. Not that lamps have emotions, but you get the, you get the analogy, right? And so he wants to, us to, to work. So what's the appropriate response to the correction of Jesus? He tells us three things. Remember? Actually, does he say remember first? Yeah, remember from where you've fallen. Okay, think back. When you first became a Christian, when you first became a believer, did you, did you want to tell people about it? If you genuinely have become a Christian, there has been some point in your life when you wanted and you did tell people about it or you at least tried. If you've not had that time in your life when you've really had a desire, at least at one point in your life, to say, I want to tell the people about Jesus because he's so great. I love him so much. If you've not yet had that, do some diagnostics. That's, what, that's why this is a warning. I'll remove your lampstand. There's, there's, some, there's some words there that are meant to be a warning. Not, not, the, not condemnation. Not, that's not the appropriate response. Don't, don't, don't fall into condemnation. Not denial. Don't make excuses. Don't argue with it. With what Jesus is saying here. Don't wallow in guilt and shame. Don't beat ourselves up. Our response is to begin with remembering where you have fallen from. 
hey, you know, man, I, I used to love people in the church because they were God's people and loved being with them. And then I used to love sharing the good news. Remember that. Remember from where you've fallen. And then remember why you felt that way. Remember that you, you were so sure of Jesus' love for you, and it was such good news. Remember that. Remember that good news. Remember what's good about good news. What's good is you were walking in darkness. He shined his light on you. He opened up your eyes. He, he made you not blind. He made you able to see. You once were blind. Now you can see. You once were lost. Now you're found. You once were lame. Now you can walk. You once were deaf. Now you can hear. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? It's not a rhetorical question. Remember. And then he says, repent. Repent. No, he doesn't say, repent, feel really terrible for yourself, and feel, beat yourself up, and self-flatulate. No, repent, and then, do, and, then, and then respond. So turn away from it, say, look, that's not good. I need to stop that. And then turn and start doing what you need to do. He says, do the works you did at first. Repent, do the works you did at first. God gives us his grace freely despite our works and, or lack thereof, and no works can ever earn one bit of God's grace. His his grace, though, is meant to enable us and compel us to work. Remember his grace, and then in response to that remembering, get to work. The church was doing good things and persevering. He commends them for their integrity, all great things. But he says, look, you've lost your first love. You're not shining that light. You're not showing love to one another. You're not shining that light by presenting the gospel, sharing the gospel with the people. Um, what do you need to do? Remember, don't wallow in guilt now. Turn back to do good works. So think about yourself. When was the last time? Not out of condemnation. I'm not going to ask you to write down a report to anybody. When was the last time you spoke about Jesus because you loved him so much to other people who didn't know Jesus? And hey, if, if, if you're doing good here, that's wonderful. Help somebody else who's not. Um, when was the last time that you... You thought, I just can't wait to share the good news. I don't know how to do it. I might mess it up. I might not get it right, but I, I want to I love people because when was the last time your heart was broken for the loss when you looked at how messed up the world was and you thought, oh my goodness, they need Jesus and I need to give it to them because nobody else will if I don't. When was the last time you thought that? Now, no condemnation in the room right now for all those who are in Christ Jesus. There's zero condemnation because he died for you. He lived for you to do what you in the flesh could not do. No condemnation, okay? So you hear that? No condemnation. He came to do what we in the flesh, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And then he died for what we did badly. But now he says, remember that and get to work. Do the things you did first. Don't take it lightly. Jesus doesn't take it lightly. He says, if not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. I'll come to you in judgment and remove your lampstand. I'm going to take it away unless you repent. If his church stops carrying out the function of shining light, it, 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 they, they stop doing what they're defined to do. They cease to exist as a church. I love this church. I don't want to cease to exist as a church because we're not carrying out our gospel light. Each and every member, we each and every member is a responsible for the church. When each member does his part, the whole church is built up and grows, right? So each and every member, contemplate, think, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to, to get back to loving Jesus? He encourages them for hating, by the way, 
in the context of this. They hate the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were people who were following after our idolatry and sensuality and saying, hey, it's okay to give in to the world and be like the world. He said, no, it's good that you don't love that part of the world. It's good that you hate that. But hey, love, love the world by being a light. And here's some wonderful promise. We're going to end with this promise here. We, here's a great promise. He says, to the one who conquers, look down your Bibles, to the one who conquers that word can also be overcomes to the victor. And we sang a song earlier, I think it was the second or the third song, I think. I'm singing the victory or something like that. Was that the second or third song? We're singing of the victory of Jesus. And so we actually conquer by putting our faith in his conquering afresh. And he says, to the one who conquers, here's some really awesome news. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Now, you remember, remember the tree of life when it was mentioned before in the Old Testament? It was the tree that was in the middle of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve never ate from, and that's a good thing, because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil first, and had they eaten the tree of life, they'd, be, they'd live in, in eternal sin, and so the angels blocked the way so they could not eat that and live in sin forever, and so they blocked the path there. They couldn't eat the tree of life until their sin was dealt with, until their sin was removed by another tree. And that word for tree here, by the way, it's, it's almost always in the New Testament only used for wood or a cross or a stick. He says, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life. I think it's a reference to the cross. And so how do we eat of this tree of life? We come through the cross. Our sin is dealt with. Now, now the angels have parted. The, when the temple curtain was torn in two, the, it had cherubim on it. The, 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 the way was parted to go into the presence of God. Why? Because sin was dealt with by the tree. And so now we can eat of the tree of life. He says, the one who conquers, I'll grant you the tree of life is in the paradise of God. I'll grant the one who conquers everlasting life to taste of the goodness of God forever. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, I can imagine God makes some awesome fruit in heaven because I like the fruit he makes here. And it's not even perfect. And he talks about the tree of life later on in Revelation. It has 12 different kinds of fruits and every fruit in every season once a month it bears a different kind of fruit. And boy, the, the diversity of the wonderful life that we will experience is what that's meant to show. It's not going to get old. This is life that's always blooming, always new, always going to be enjoyable. It's varied. Don't think about boring existence. It's not what that's talking about. He talks about tree of life in paradise. Paradise was the, the word used for a walled area or a garden and they plant all these wonderful things and they bring game animals in and they would enjoy it and that was what was around the temple of Artemis in Ephesus so they would have known what that was. But it was also originally what God planted Adam and Eve in the original paradise. And now he says if you conquer, if, you, if you're putting your faith, your trust is to respond, to repent, to shine light and that's the way by loving other people you're conquering in that way. In the conquering of Jesus, you are taking that and you are enduring in that. You're being faithful in that because he has conquered. You get to eat of the tree of life and be in his paradise with God in his presence forever. Isn't that good news? Here's how you conquer, by the way. Revelation tells us as well in Revelation 12. It says they overcame him, what? Because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. They overcame because of the blood of the lamb, their sins have been washed away and what? Because of the word of their testimony. Oh my goodness, this is tying it back to you. The word of their testimony. That's how they conquered. By being faithful in their testimony, they conquered by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. They didn't love their life. They loved other people through their testimony. 
Jesus promises we get to eat the tree of life and be in God's presence because we trust in his tree that made a way for us to inherit life. The one who conquers will live forever in the most amazing, boundless, majestic, incredible, awesome, mind-blowing paradise, not of man, but of God. The all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful God who's adopted us as his children. And he says, come on back. Just repent. Get back. I want you to enjoy this. Imagine a paradise of our own creation. This is greater. What a promise. What, a, what an incentive. Amen? I never plugged the light in, by the way. I hope this plug works. He, it almost does. Well, see, a couple of these lamps, they need to be fixed. That's an appropriate thing. Um, why don't the band come up and we will close in response. Um, if you've experienced conviction, um, I want you to respond and say, Lord, let me turn. Let me remember your love for me. Let remember the love I had at first. And then, God, help me to respond. Help me to do those works that, that we did at first, that, that we first did. So let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Jesus, thank you for your love. May we love you in reply. In your name we pray. Amen.